You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Another night of violence, water cannon deployed by police and scenes being played out over the last week that many thought or hoped were part of a past in Northern Ireland. Leaders in the North, in Dublin, London and Washington, have appealed for calm. We'll talk to our Northern editor, Vincent Carney, in just a moment, but we can hear first some of the sounds of last night's disturbances on the streets of Belfast as PSNI units came under attack from fireworks thrown at them at Lanark Way. Some of the sounds there last night, our Northern Editor Vincent Kearney. Uh, Vincent, we heard the sounds. Would you describe uh, some of the scenes you saw last night? Well, as you say, yet another night of violence. And this violence was in roughly the same geographic area as violence on Wednesday night. Now, it wasn't to the same level of violence. But in terms of where this is, if you can imagine a big letter H, so there are two roads. The Springfield Road on the national side would be the left hand of that letter H, and the Shanker Road, the Lord of Shanker Road, would be the right hand leg of that letter. Across the middle of the bar is Lanark Way. This separates the two areas. Now, Wednesday night, much of the violence was concentrated along that bar joining the two roads and particularly at one end of it where there's a big security gate that separates the two sides that security gate is normally open during the day for buses for traffic for people to walk through at times of heightened tension it will be closed at night but clearly it's closed now because of because of this trouble um last night most of most of the violence was actually on the two legs of the letter gauge and not in the middle the police managed to take, take that middle ground and keep the crowds apart so they weren't for example close enough to throw fireworks and petrol bombs and stones at each other as they had been on, on Wednesday night. So what happened last night is they concentrated all their fire and efforts on the police themselves. So the, the police again faced um, a barrage of petrol bombs, fireworks, bricks, bottles, heavy masonry, basically anything that matters can get their hands on. Uh, and then water cannon were deployed for the, the first time in six years. Now, we have been sent some um, footage on social media, I used some of it last night, on the 6-1, which showed uh, water cannon driving along the M1 to be deployed. Um, they were in a number of places. They were held back in case they were needed. Uh, and police commanders on the ground last night clearly decided that the situation was such that they needed to bring the water cannon in to disperse the crowd. So water cannon was deployed on the national side on the Springfield Road, while on the Lourdes side on the Shanker Road there were several warnings to riders that if they didn't assist um, <clears throat> greater force would be used and that would have been the use of plastic bullets. Um, the six plastic bullets have been fired on Wednesday night because the police said there had been an imminent threat to life and they said that that's the only situation in which they use those weapons. And Vincent, are we still seeing children and young teenagers out on the streets? Yes, very much. You look around now. There are older teenagers. There, there, you can see some men in, the, in their early to mid twenties. There are a few older heads around as well. But by and large, when you see, when you watch the footage as well, it's the size of some of the people involved. You know, they, they, they even look small uh, and look young. Some of them are 12, 13, 14 years of age. And many politicians here are simply saying, "Where are the parents in all of this?" Because perhaps on on night one, the parents don't know where their kids are. But 
There's been 11 consecutive nights of violence now in various parts of Northern Ireland. Now, the first nine nights were really concentrated in loyalist areas because uh, loyalists were, were ratting and targeting the police. It's only in the past two nights, really, that nationalist areas have become involved as well. And many politicians are, are, are sh- really shaking their heads in disbelief because their parents in these areas, they must know what their kids are doing. And that's a great frustration for the police because not only are these young kids getting themselves potentially a criminal record, but they're also potentially getting themselves very seriously injured because when you stand and watch them throwing missiles at each other, including fireworks, anyone who watched the TV footage over the last night or two will see that some of these petrol bombs you know, have, lo- have landed within feet of riders and if a, if a petrol bomb hits you, you're in serious trouble. You know, if, if you're not killed, you're at least very, very seriously injured. Um, but it doesn't seem to deter these young kids. Now, part of the thinking is that these kids don't have any sort of embedded memory of what the troubles was like. So for them, this is a bit of recreational ratting. It, it's a bit of excitement. Um, but for the, the older hands around, they know this can be more serious. And some of them are actively encouraging the kids. They can be heard at times cheering, egging them on, applauding. Uh, and that's a great concern to, to police and and over the last few nights that's been part of the appeal as well as appealing to uh, people in the community to use their influence there have also been appeals to parents uh, to try to stop their children and, and to make sure they know where they are at night Older heads, Vincent, worried that the momentum that has been gathering now is going to be hard to stop. We've had political condemnation now on all sides. What about the next steps, though? You talked of that uh, virtual meeting today that the Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, is convening. That's right. Brandon will will have the five executive parties around the table uh, virtually today, along with the Chief Constable, um, Simon Byrne. Um, Simon Byrne will again update the politicians on injuries to his officers <coughs> and what intelligence they're picking up from the from the community, uh, if any, about the level of violence and trouble they might expect in, in the days ahead. So there is an increased impetus to try to stop this this violence. We've had Stephen uh, Jesse from, from the teacher. Any engagement between Arlene Foster and Brand and and uh, Simon Byrne, the chief constable? There will be as virtually. I mean, uh, Arlene Foster yesterday she had a statement saying that, that she she had had a a conference call with him for ten minutes yesterday morning. Now that was a step change for her because last week she called for him to resign and then re- reinforced that by saying that she had no intention of meeting him or talking to him. So she spoke to him yesterday in a conference call. And now she is ill at the moment. Um, she, she couldn't take part in, in the executive meeting yesterday or the assembly meeting in person. She had to dial in on Zoom. Um, so we're presuming she will take part in the meeting today and if so she will be engaging with the Chief Constable because he will be part of that meeting. Vincent Kearney, our Northern Editor, thank you very much. The reported combination of blood clots and low blood platelets is very rare and the overall benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine in preventing COVID-19 outweighs the risk of side effects. That was the key finding from the European Medicines Agency yesterday about the possible links between the AstraZeneca vaccine and rare blood clots. But many member states have already placed limits on who gets that vaccine and the UK will curb its use in the under 30s. To understand to understand all this better, Paul Moyna, Professor of Immunology at Maynooth University, is on the line. Good morning, Professor Moyna. Good morning, Anya. That finding from the EMA, the benefits outweigh the risk. What is the risk and who is most at risk from taking the AstraZeneca vaccine? 
you know, so the risk, so, so if you look at the numbers across Europe and the UK, so far we've had about 34 million doses and there have been around 220 cases of these very rare clotting conditions. So that gives roughly a risk of 1 in 150,000. So it is a very rare event. Um, we, we also see other uh, clotting type uh, events happening as well, but they occur at the same incidence as the background population, the unvaccinated uh, population. So that gives you a sense in terms of the risk. So it is it is very rare. So and at at these levels, the EMA have decided that the benefits clearly outweigh uh, the risks, especially in older uh, age groups. So it seems to particularly uh, affect younger people. Uh, women uh, under the age of 50. So that seems to be the main uh, risk group, but again, quite rare. And what we have is a kind of confused picture when you look around now. There's choice to the under 30s in the UK, Italy not giving to the under 60s, they're not giving it to younger people in Germany and France and Canada, the Netherlands. There's a total halt for now in Denmark and Norway. So what should we do in Ireland? Yeah, so certainly the EMA, we, like we entrusted the EMA in terms of licensing for our various uh, vaccines. The EMA continues to recommend that the benefits outweigh the risks across all age groups. If you look at the difference between the benefits and risks, that tends to narrow as we decrease in age, mainly because the risks of COVID-19 decrease with age. But even across those age groups, when you do the, and you look at the numbers, again, benefits still outweigh the risks. And as a result, the EMA continue to recommend use across all age groups. Now, obviously, obviously, the ultimate decision will be up to individual and national regulators. And I know NIAC is considering this and again, we'll discuss this with European counterparts uh, later on today. All right. And we also have uh, here in this country, um, we know that a lot of young women uh, work in the health service, that a lot of them have been vaccinated already. A lot would have had their first jab of of the Astra. Um, Again, what should we do if some of them are unwilling or confused or hesitant about getting a second AstraZeneca jab? So for, as far as we can tell, first of all, it, these rare effects seem only to be associated with the first dose. Now, obviously, we've greater number of people to be vaccinated with the first dose, but so far it only seems to be associated with the first dose. And again, DMA have recommended to continue with the second uh, dose. Some countries are considering the possibility of using a different vaccine for the second dose. Now, that would be off-label use because... The EMA have approved use based on using the same two vaccines for mm-hmm. dose one and dose two. So there may be issues there in terms of indemnity. Now, there is no, actually, there's some scientific reasons that would suggest that two different vaccines may actually work uh, better. But so far, in terms of licensing approval, uh, it's been approved to use the same two vaccines for dose one and uh, dose two. And so far, the effects, these rare effects, seem only to be associated with the first dose around tw- seven to 14 days after the first dose. That's useful information. Thank you for joining us with it this morning. That's Professor uh, Paul Moyner there. In the United States, testimony in the trial of a former police officer charged with the murder of George Floyd has entered its second week. 
Yesterday, the Minneapolis police chief gave evidence. He said that when Derek Chauvin pressed his knee to Mr Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, it violated the department's rules as and was in no way part of his training. Last year, footage of Mr Chauvin, who was white, kneeling on African-American Mr Floyd's neck, sparked protests around the world. Our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, has been following the evidence. In 2017, Madario Arredondo became the first African-American man to be appointed to the role of Minneapolis Chief of Police. Now, last week in their opening statements, prosecutors said that he would not mince his words when he testified. It is unusual for a police chief to testify against one of their own officers. But last year, following the killing of George Floyd, Chief Arredondo fired Derek Chauvin. And he released this very strongly worded statement at the time saying that what he had done was murder and was not down to a lack of training. And that was very much the theme of the chief's evidence yesterday. He said that he was home on that night in May last year when Derek Chauvin knelt on the neck of George Floyd for more than nine minutes. The chief got a call about the death and he watched the arrest recorded from a surveillance camera across the street. But he said he only realised the seriousness of the situation and he became quite alarmed when he saw that video footage that was recorded by a bystander, that same footage that went viral and sparked a wave of protests around the world. Now, Derek Chauvin's defence lawyers have argued that their client was just following police training and was just doing what he was supposed to do when he restrained George Floyd. But Chief Arredondo said this was certainly not the case. He said his actions had violated the police department's rules and its ethics codes when it comes to respecting the sanctity of life. The chief also testified that he vehemently disagreed that this was an appropriate use of force. When Mr Floyd was no longer responsive, and even motionless to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. Who else did the court hear from yesterday, Brian? Rachel, we also heard from Dr. Bradford Langenfeld. He was the emergency doctor who took over George Floyd's care when he was brought to the hospital by paramedics. He subsequently pronounced Mr. Floyd dead a short time later. Now, one of the central arguments by the defence here is that George Floyd's death may have been linked to drug use or underlying health conditions. The autopsy, the toxicology tests that were carried out on his body revealed that there were drugs in George Floyd's system, including the drug fentanyl. Now, in cross-examination yesterday, Dr. Langenfeld was asked if fentanyl could have led to this low oxygen level that we saw in George Floyd's blood, and the doctor agreed that it could. However, he said the most likely explanation for George Floyd's death was asphyxia, that he he had been deprived of oxygen. Was your leading theory then for the cause of Mr. Floyd's cardiac arrest oxygen, oxygen deficiency? That was one of the more likely possibilities. I felt that at the time, based on the information I had, it was more likely than the other possibilities. And, and doctor, is there another name for death by oxygen deficiency? Asphyxia is a commonly understood term. Thank you, Dr. Langenfeld. No further questions. 
Brian, this is the second week of testimony in this trial. How much longer is it likely to run for and who else is expected to testify? Well, yesterday evening, Rachel, we heard from Police Inspector Katie Blackwell. She used to run the department's police training unit. She told the court that Derek Chauvin went against authorised training when he used his knee on George Floyd's neck to pin him to the ground. She'll continue her evidence today and she is the latest in a series of police witnesses to testify that what Derek Chauvin did was not consistent with his training. Now, in terms of the duration of this trial, at the beginning of the proceedings, we were told that it was likely to run for up to four weeks. Interestingly, on Friday, the proceedings actually finished up early because the trial was running ahead of schedule. Last week, we saw lots of emotional testimony from those who knew George Floyd, those who had witnessed his death. We heard from his girlfriend and she also spoke about George Floyd's struggles with drug addiction and it's been very interesting to see that it has been the prosecution that has repeatedly brought up George Floyd's drug use and I think what they're doing is trying to preempt and get ahead of this defence argument that it was drugs that may have led to this death. The prosecution of course disputes this and insists it was Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck that killed him and there will be a lot more medical evidence to come over the coming days and weeks. And that is where we're going to see the real contention and the real detailed forensic examination of the evidence. And remember, Rachel, it is not the defence's job to definitively prove how George Floyd died. They are just trying to implant doubt in the minds of the jury. Our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan. The Citizens' Assembly will meet for the final time this month to agree recommendations on gender equality to the government. Prior to the pandemic, the Assembly met one weekend over six months at a hotel in Malahide in County Dublin. However, COVID-19 put an end to all of that. And the current Assembly, which has been examining the issue of gender equality, had to move its work entirely online. Our social affairs correspondent Alva Keneally reports. Dublin Castle, January 2020. 100 citizens randomly selected from across Ireland. RTE's Coleman O'Sullivan reports on the launch of the newest Citizens' Assembly. Their job over the next six months is to look at how gender affects people's lives. But all that changed following the introduction of COVID-19 restrictions in March last year. A decision had to be made, as the chairperson Catherine Day explains. Do we cancel? Do we wait until the virus pandemic is over? Or do we move online and um, try to continue? And my view was that the COVID crisis would change a lot of people's attitudes and should change a lot of future policies. And I felt that um, this Citizens' Assembly could actually play an enhanced role by bringing back to the political representatives the views of the citizens as they evolved during the pandemic. That was why we decided to go online. And so it was left to the Citizens' Assembly Secretariat team under Mary Claire O'Sullivan to work out how that would be done. The first thing was, well, look, it's kind of a civil service thing as well. Is anybody else doing this already, you know? So we... um the UK Climate Assembly had just finished and actually they had had been had been just due to have one final weekend and then they had to go online. So they did it quite quickly and we spoke to them and that was very useful. So, for example, they told us it took them three weekends to cover 
online what they had planned to cover in person in one but of course they were they were right at the end of the work they did a lot of meetings they knew each other very well whereas we were in a totally different situation because our our gang had only met each other once so you know we sort of had to bear that in mind so that was a good lesson for us first of all we needed to be realistic about how much you can get done online and um, the UK had also used zoom um so that that was that was good to know and I mean after after speaking to them I think the next step really we needed to speak to the citizens because if they weren't happy or equipped to go online, that that would not be possible. A survey of the citizens showed that while the vast majority had good broadband, just over a fifth had never partaken in a video call before and over a quarter weren't comfortable in doing so. Here's Mary Claire O'Sullivan again. The team kind of began a kind of a, a Zoom training programme, kind of beginner advanced and intermediate Zoom training in small groups. That worked really well. Pat Dowling is based in Mayo. He had never used Zoom prior to the Citizens' Assembly moving online. For the first meeting or two, it was uh, okay. After that, it was very, uh, very acceptable, you know. Was, and then there was an issue, all you had to do was contact the secretariat and it was solved. If this arose again in another assembly, I would certainly recommend to people to have no hesitation, whatever. The challenge of Zoom is one thing, but so too are the topics on which the current assembly will make recommendations to the government. Issues like women in public life, carers in the home, childcare, gender-based violence, gender norms and stereotypes. They're all heavy topics if you're sitting at home on your laptop. Jerry Crowley is one of the Dublin-based assembly members. I suppose the, the information download we're getting is so immense on this. So you're trying to digest all that information. You're trying to then, I suppose, not get too too uh, upset about it at times because it can be. There's a lot of benefits and pluses to virtual working, but uh, you almost come away from it somewhat zoomed out or, or, you know, from the whole event. But yeah, you don't have that interaction with, with colleagues to discuss or have a chat about it or to digest it as a group. You have to do it all yourself. One of the youngest members is Aoife Houlihan. So my background is in science. So like, like I did biochemistry. So learning all of this stuff about like the social science aspect, gender studies, like it's all the stuff that I have never looked into. In an, I could have been aware of some of it, you know, um, but looking into the more detailed studies and statistics and all that, um, yeah, I find it really interesting. The final votes and recommendations by the Citizens' Assembly will take place this month. It'll then be up to Catherine Day to give their views to government. Our citizens, I I call them our citizens, our group, have said to us that they see themselves as the next step in advancing social progress, uh, particularly for gender equality in Ireland. So we want to document all that. And since we're the first Citizens' Assembly in Ireland to have gone online, we'd like to leave, um, you know, a record of our experience and some recommendations about if um, future Citizens' Assemblies were to be online, how it might be done. We would love to have a closing ceremony, you know, to thank everybody. And I think it would be lovely to be able to have some kind of a, a farewell in person but um, you know that's just not an option for now so we will we will do a closing ceremony online in April The chair of the Citizens Assembly Catherine Day ending Alva Keneally's report
As we've been hearing, Molly and Thomas Martins, who were convicted of murdering her husband, Limerick man Jason Corbett, have been released from prison in the United States ahead of a retrial. Both were released after being granted bail on a $200,000 bond. They must also surrender their passports and not attempt to make any contact with the family of Mr Corbett. In a statement last night, Jason Corbett's sister, Tracy Corbett Lynch, said she looked forward to a date being set for a retrial at the earliest opportunity. The family said they wouldn't be making any further comment for now. After the court hearing, attorney for Thomas Martins, David Freeman, spoke to us from North Carolina and he gave us the Martins' reaction. She was ecstatic when she got out. Tom was very happy to be being released too. He must have been in custody for 44 months. Thomas is, I think, 71. Molly is now 37. Uh, what has it been like for them uh, being in jail? Well, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, they both have made the best of it. David, there was some expectation that uh, the Martins uh, may be offered a, a plea bargain, a plea deal. Did that happen? Um, I'm in no position to discuss anything except sort of what went on in court today with the bond. Were there discussions? Was it either offered or was it sought I, by I, you, I, the, the defence? Today I'm just focused on getting him out on bond. Okay, and what are the next steps now? There's no new court date yet. You know, COVID has backed up all of the court systems um, tremendously, so I'm not quite sure, you know, when when we have a further proceeding. Do you anticipate now that there'll be a, a new date set for a full retrial? At some point, I believe that to be the case, yes. And is that likely? I, I, I understand with, with COVID that makes uh, these trials difficult. It, yeah, but it's just, yeah, I mean, the, the, I don't know yet. We have not discussed that. The only thing we discussed was setting up the hearing for today. Would you anticipate, though, that it might be sooner rather than later? I, I don't think so, not with all the other cases that are out there. So they could be at, at home for a considerable period of time? They could be, yes. The Corbett family uh, issued a, a lengthy statement. They thanked the, the district attorney for, for seeking a retrial, not being involved in a, in, in, a, in a plea deal. They recounted as well the circumstances of, of Jason's killing which was admitted by your your clients and they recounted some of the details but they went on to say that uh, the martins had shown no remorse they'd shown utter contempt for the victim yeah. and his children uh, do, do the martins want to say anything now to the corbett family or to jason corbett's children well we're, we're not in a position and i i disagree with a great deal of what the Corbett family has said and don't really care to get into it. All I can say is two different appellate courts looked at the case for Tom and Molly and decided that they did not receive a fair trial and that's what we're looking forward to receiving next time. I, and I understand that you, your main focus was the, the bail and getting your clients out, but you will be casting your mind forward to, to a retrial. Um, would you anticipate calling new witnesses? I, I I can't say at this point. I'm not forecasting how a new what we'll do for a new trial. The family has said that Jason Corbett's children are prepared to give evidence at a retrial. Would you welcome that? Yes, I would. I believe they gave very compelling statements to the Child Advocacy Center under very thorough um, investigation, and I look forward to the jury being able to see what the children actually had to say. And what would happen with those statements? Because as I understand it, and the family mentions it, they recounted those statements as soon as they uh, returned to the, the, the Corbett uh, again, family. I, I, uh, I disagree with a bunch yeah. of what they say, and I really uh, don't want to get into that right now. Uh, 
I understand. But would those statements uh, still be admissible in court, or would you have to fight to have them admitted? Uh, uh, the Supreme Court said they're admissible. So, so, the Supreme Court so they said would a be lot heard? They would be heard, yes. And would the children be heard as well? Um, that's up for the state to decide. If it's a full retrial, uh, does that mean that we go back to, to the starting point before yeah, a jury? Right now, we're, we're back at the starting point now. There's no conviction, and they are presumed to be innocent. So there we are back. Once the Supreme Court rule, we are back at the starting point. How much publicity has surrounded this, not a, just the trial great, at the time, but the, the various appearances and well, hearings a great, since? a great, great deal of publicity as a, as a parent, the fact that you're calling me you know, from Ireland and I'm here in North Carolina. Do you, do you know if, if, if Thomas and, and Molly Martins have followed all of that publicity from prison? I think it's difficult not to follow this publicity. So they would be very well aware of how much attention it's attracted both in this country and indeed in yes. North Carolina. Very, very much so. I mean, there's been several national news magazines that have been based a whole episode on this. There are strict conditions uh, around their bail, uh, but will they be trying to resume some semblance of, of, of a normal life? Absolutely. That's what I would encourage them to do. So I'm sure there'll be very emotional scenes as they're, they're welcomed yes. back to their very family. Very much so, very much so, very touching. Who decides the next steps? Are you, do you make the next move now, or do you wait for the court, the, the, the prosecution, right. the, the DA right, right to make the next have, moves? Yeah, we just have to, let the, we have to let the court process play out. And that was David Freeman. He's attorney for Thomas Martins, talking to me earlier this morning. Only one case of COVID-19 in every thousand has been traced to outdoor transmission. Figures reported in this morning's Irish Times and compiled by the Health Protection Surveillance Centre show that of more than 230,000 confirmed cases of the virus, just 262 were recorded as resulting from transmission outdoors. It should be added, however, that in 20% of cases, the source of the infection remains unknown. Professor Cleanan Kelly, who's a consultant in infectious diseases at St. James's Hospital in Dublin joins us now on the line. Good morning and thanks for being with us. Good morning. Do these figures, do they further bolster the belief that the outdoors is far, far safer than indoors? They do, they do. And I think they're a useful addition um, to what we know from international studies that outdoor transmission is very rare. Um, I think, you know, we do need to be conscious that the Irish data is because of, of the resources that we've been able to put into that backward contact tracing and making sure exactly where people have picked up the virus uh, aren't as, the resources that we would like to have there aren't there. Um, so our data may not be as strong as data from other countries uh, where they have more resources, but it does support that, that the virus, you know, seems to be dispersed very rapidly outdoors. Um, even if somebody is breathing it out, it's blowing away before it can get into the next person. Internationally then, how much work has been done on the chances of catching COVID when you're outdoors? So there's a lot of work um, and it's it can be challenging to keep up every day something new is published. Mm -hmm. But there is, you know, very large scale work pulling together studies from China and um, from the US, from other countries, from Italy, from other countries all around the world. Um, looking, you know, tracing back very carefully to see if you can identify where somebody picked it up. And that's very reassuring in terms of a tiny fraction of COVID potentially have be, having been acquired outdoors. We know that it's mostly indoors and um, mostly to do with breathing it in. So ventilation 
isolation indoors can also reduce the risk um, and mask, wear, mask wearing can reduce the risk. So all of those things, we have good evidence to, to tell us that they make life a lot safer. Does this suggest then that there can be unnecessary panic when, say, a large number of people gather in a park? So I I think so. I think part of the problem is it's also how people get to the park and um, what people do if it starts to rain in the park, what people do if they need to go to the loo um, or, you know, go indoors uh, for a moment. So we just need to be really careful about those things that happen around going to the park or going to the match um, or going wherever, you know, sharing lifts in cars. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, having drinks or snacks uh, after a match in a room, changing rooms, all of those things we need to be really conscious of because they are probably where the transmission is much more likely to occur than actually outdoors in the open air. How then should this inform plans for reopening, do you think? Well, I think we need to think creatively about what we can do outdoors. I was in the park myself uh, for a walk this weekend. It was lovely weather. Um, and, you know, there's so many things that people can do outdoors. One of our local um, hotels, the steps are being used for skateboarding. So could we think about things like skateboarding parks, uh, basketball courts, um, all things that, you know, young people and kids and adults um, can use to enjoy the outdoors. I think in general in Ireland, we're probably not great at using our public outdoor spaces. I, you know, we all notice when we travel abroad, they seem to do a lot more things outside and in fact uh, people who've moved to Ireland from other countries you often see them having you know family picnics or barbecues or things um, outdoors so we need to probably start thinking a little bit more about what bits of our life um, can we safely and pleasurably do outdoors because actually our climate is pretty mild and if you're flexible um, and have a plan b for when that little rain shower comes there's actually loads of stuff we can do. Mm, That's a good point isn't it I think over the past year or so many of us have almost rediscovered the outdoors and have discovered the extent to which being outdoors, even on a relatively mediocre day, can give you an enormous Mm. boost. Absolutely, because you're getting so much more light. You're getting fresh air. I loved last summer um, during lockdown, you could see loads of kind of teenagers uh, out cycling with their friends, out doing loads of things outdoors. um, And it just looked like great fun. Um, And I was looking when I was a teenager, I lived in Finland and they do a lot more indoors in their outdoors in their very short summer um, and even in their winter, which is very harsh. Um, And I have lots of happy memories as a teenager of wandering around, you know, parks and forests uh, with my friends. So it's great to see young Irish people doing that. I think it's, it's a benefit. It's something we can get, some good that we can get out of this terrible pandemic. You mentioned a few minutes ago about the volume of research now emerging and more research is emerging all the while, in particular about the B117 variant mm. and how much more contagious it is. Mm. So I think that really backs up what we're seeing on the ground. So you know, you can see that in the numbers um, going down. We can see that when we're having patients come in um, from one household, we're usually seeing much a much higher proportion of the people that live with that person who comes in also getting COVID. Um, we can see it in how difficult, despite our, you know, we've been in, in lockdown level five for months now, how hard it has been to get our numbers down. And I think we've also seen, unfortunately, that there's a higher mortality rate. And that's come out in the data with B117 as well, that it does seem to be more severe and and, uh, you know, cause more deaths, which is very sad.
Talk to us, if you would, about this new variant first identified in Brittany, which, which appears, according to reports so far, to be more difficult to detect in tests. Is it a cause for concern, do you think? It is. I mean, I suppose all the mutations popping up um, really show what, as somebody who, who works with viruses, what we know, viruses want to survive and they will mutate. Um, viruses mutate very rapidly when they copy themselves. They make lots of mistakes in each copy um, so that some of those mistakes give it an edge over the other viruses and they keep going. And we've seen, you know, the B117, we've seen this Breton variant where potentially when, when we do PCR tests or any tests in the lab, we're looking for a little bit of virus. Um, and when that bit is there, then, then you can detect it. So if that bit changes, then we can't detect it. So, so that may be what's going on or presumably is going on with the Breton variant. I think what's really worrying me at the moment um, is around strains that where people who are immune either from having had infection or having been vaccinated, that that immunity no longer works. Um, and those would be the P1 in Brazil, which looks very worrying, and the, the South African strain as well. And those are the ones that we really need to keep an eye on. And I suppose they also really highlight the importance of getting everybody around the world vaccinated as quickly as we can. And whether that requires us to do some creative thinking um, or some flexibility around patents and who's allowed to manufacture vaccines. Um, but it really, I suppose, one of the, the, the tenets of an infectious diseases doctor is disease anywhere is disease everywhere. So we're not safe until the whole world is safe. And I think this really highlights the importance of, of solidarity, global solidarity in addressing them virus. Do you think then that, that the emergence of new variants like this, this Brittany variant, that they might have implications for the way we vaccinate people, as in might some sort of booster vaccination be needed a few months down the line? I suppose that's the best case scenario, to be honest. So the best case scenario is that there is a, you know, a booster that we can do so we can change the part of the virus that we have or the, the little piece of the outside of the virus that's in the vaccine to match what's in these vaccine resistant strains. Then that means we have to revaccinate everybody. And I think, you know, we've heard very much over the last few months how challenging it is to produce and deliver enough vaccines to everybody. And that's in Ireland, which is, you know, a, a rich country. Um, and, and yeah, and that's the best case scenario. So we really need to, to hold our horses and to focus on getting globally the numbers under control. We need to be very careful with our travel um, that we're not allowing these resistant strains that have an edge on the other strains uh, to spread and continue to mutate. Professor Cleonini Kelly, thank you very much for joining us on Morning Ireland. Well, Jordan is a country that doesn't usually make global headlines, and that in many ways is its strength. In the turbulence of the Middle East, Jordan has been an ally of the West and a useful intermediary between Israel and the Arab world. And in large part, that stability is down to the Jordanian royal family, originally under King Hussein, and then for the past two decades under King Abdullah. But that stability is suddenly looking shaky after the government outlined allegations against the king's half-brother, Prince Hamza, that he and others had been involved in an attempted coup, a plot to destabilise the country. Fawaz Gerges is Professor of Middle East Relations at the London School of Economics. He's on the line now. Fawaz, thanks for joining us. Prince Hamza released a video to the BBC saying that he's under house arrest, that two of his senior aides have been detained. He's denied any allegations of a coup and he turned his finger of blame onto Jordan's rulers. Is this pretty unprecedented? Uh, Well, this is not the Jordan we know. Uh, this is very much unusual. Uh, these things happen in Syria, in Iraq, uh, in Libya, in Yemen, not in Jordan. 
uh, Jordan has been relatively uh, a relative oasis in a very turbulent uh, neighborhood. Uh, it borders Israel, it borders Iraq, it borders Syria next to Lebanon. So you can imagine why we all uh, tend to celebrate the stability uh, and the security of Jordan. But the past few years have been very difficult for Jordan. For your own listeners, uh, just in the past four years since uh, when, when uh, Donald Trump was in power, Jordan was sidelined uh, in favor of the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Israelis and the Bahrainis. The economic situation has deteriorated uh, a great deal. Uh, last year, 35% of Jordanians uh, were living in poverty. Unemployment is about 30%. Foreign aid has decreased considerably. You have almost 1 million Syrian refugees. A great deal of restiveness among the social base mm. of the Hashemite regime. And on top of that, what we are witnessing, what we have witnessed in the past 48 hours, is a rapture within the Hashemite royal family. And that's suggesting that King Abdullah II is threatened, that's not the question. But this is the first time that we see a major rift uh, between Hamza, who was the crown prince of Jordan up to, 2000, uh, to, to uh, 1999 and then 2004, and the King Abdullah II and his allies within the Hashemite family. Yeah, and and we remember a very limited uprising in 2010 when other um, Arab countries were, were undergoing similar change. And, and there's been a, a tension, perhaps, between Hamza and the royal family. He was crown prince, then he was removed in favour of Abdullah's elder son. And ha- is he more popular as well among a certain portion of the East Bank community, not Palestinians, not refugees, but the the loyal support base that the regime would have? I mean, I think really you summarized uh, in a very practical way uh, what we are talking about. Uh, Hamza was being groomed to become the king. He was the favorite of King, the late King Hussein. Uh, Very charismatic, uh, and suddenly, uh, of course, he was very young when King Hussein died. So he was, he was seen as inexperienced, and he was passed over for the current king, King Abdullah. He is highly popular. He speaks the tribal language, the dialect. Uh, the situation has been economically and socially very grim. A uh, great deal of grievances. And uh, Prince Hamza reminds the social base of the uh, Hashemite family, uh, basically of King Hussein. He's really his father. I mean, he looks like his father. He speaks like his father. Um, He's charismatic. So tribes, certain tribes, key tribes in Jordan have been very unhappy with the situation. There's a tremendous turmoil. I mean, you know, we, we tend to really be very superficial, all of us, when we talk about Jordan as, you know, a, an ally of the West. What does it mean? What's happening inside Jordan? Uh, the pandemic has done a great deal of damage. So what Prince Hamza does is that he, he is invited to meet with the tribal leaders, the tribal clans. He listens. He gives voice to the anger going on within. So this is why my take on it, really, you mentioned um, it's a coup. It, it's not a coup. Jordan can never have a coup. The security forces and the military and extension of the palace 
he has no connections to the security forces. I think this is a palace coup, uh, forgive me to say that. It's not a coup by uh, Prince Hamza. He cannot carry out a coup even if, if he wants to. Mm. I think what we are seeing now is a kind of family dispute. Yeah. And regardless of the crisis, I think the palace now can really get rid of Prince Hamza once and for all. He, 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 because he was seen as a troublemaker, a person who's really willing to meet with the critics of okay. the government and the palace. We will leave it there for now. We'll keep an eye on it. Thank you very much indeed, Fawaz Gergay's Professor of Middle East Relations at the LSE. Now, two first-time novelists are among the five writers shortlisted for the Listowel Writers Week Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year Award, which carries a top prize of €15,000. The popular Listowel Festival will be going ahead virtually over the June bank holiday weekend when the winner will be announced. And Catherine Moylan, the chairperson of Listowel Writers Week, joins us. Catherine, good morning to you. And you'll be having a virtual celebration of a postponed 50th birthday for the festival this year, will you? That's right. It's, it's a good news story, but yeah, we never imagined this time last year when we cancelled our 50th that we would be going virtual this time um, in, in 2021. We assumed, like a lot of other festivals, that we would have a, a physical presence. But look, we have evolved and um, it's actually given us a great opportunity to reach a new audience. So every, every uh, cloud is a silver lining, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> And the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year Award, um, what kind of shortlist have you come up with after a year of pandemic? (laughs) I know. Actually, we did go ahead with the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year last year, which was fantastic. And thanks to Kerry Group for that. And this year we have, it's a really, I suppose it's a fantastic, it's five emerging writers, I would say. We have Neve Campbell, who's a, a debut novelist, and Laura McKenna also. And then Anna Kina Schofield and Rob Doyle and Adrian Duncan are also on the shortlist. So I think it's a really positive sign of the the talent of emerging Irish writers. And definitely some people have not been bored during the lockdown because all of these books were released in the last 12 months. And so we're delighted to give them a platform as well to you know promote uh, their talent and to celebrate Irish literature, some, some literary nourishment, I suppose, to this stage of the year. And we were a wee treat for people listening now, uh, because so many people have been taking pleasure from books during lockdown. Words to Shape My Name is one of the first time novels on the shortlist. And last night, its author, Laura McKenna, read us an extract. Boredom, restlessness, these feelings dogged him. He saw how Edward responded to each letter, how he savoured each word on the page as though it were a tasty morsel how sometimes he took the words apart, cut into them to find their message. And all the while, Tony was excluded from this, relying on his master to read aloud. The other officers were the same. The post box contained all the promise of a world away from this one. The men took to the quiet of their bunks, preferring to read by the dull glow of a reed lamp than in company. The words within those pages belonged to them alone taking them away from the now of the snowbound fort, back to their homes in England and their wives or mothers, their daily doings and illnesses. Tony's only escape was imagination or memory, and that was not a place he wanted to be. We're all using our imaginations to escape. Laura McKenna there reading from her novel Words to Shape My Name, which is one of the five novels shortlisted for the Kerry Group Listowel Writers Week Irish Novel of the Year Award, which we heard about from the chairperson of Listowel Writers Week, Catherine Moylan. (laughs) 
It was difficult to put in place and now it's proving both a challenge to police and to extend the number of countries to which mandatory hotel quarantine applies. Yesterday, three people absconded from the Dublin hotel where they were quarantining and had travelled about 150 kilometres before being persuaded to return by Gardaí. In a further development, Gardaí representative groups have voiced concern about members' potential exposure to the virus. Conor Gallagher is the Irish Times crime correspondent. Good morning, Conor. The the three who who left their hotel accommodation, what what happened? Uh, Well, what we understand is these are three uh, Brazilian nationals who recently flew into the country and um, had to go into mandatory hotel quarantine for for 14 days. So they they seem to have left the facility um, and were spotted leaving the facility by the defence forces liaison person or one of the security personnel uh, they got in the car and drove 150 kilometres they were on their way home uh, to um, Lockery in, in County Donegal but uh, Gardaí were alerted they spotted them on the motorway uh, as they were making their way west pulled them over and Gardaí seems to have been able to persuade the women that it was in their best interest to, to turn the car around and return to quarantine. So um, Gardaí engaged in what they say, you know, a graduated response. So they didn't have to uh, arrest the women or detain them. They did it under their own steam. So um, I don't think we're going to see any uh, criminal convictions in this one. The women are now back in mandatory quarantine. OK, are any charges to follow from that? Do we know now at this point uh, how many people have left their hotel quarantine uh, while they should still be, be be serving out their quarantine time? Uh, these two women would make it a total of five uh, people who have actually left the quarantine um, and that, uh, that doesn't include the, the two uh, women who flew in from Dubai who actually refused to go to quarantine in the first place. Um, and, and, and were later arrested and detained and, and, and are now before the courts. Um, but of five people in total who've absconded from quarantine after only about a week of operation. Uh, there's something that puzzles me, Connor. Why is it, I wonder, uh, people coming into the country from these named countries, they know they're going into hotel quarantine, they're signing up for it, and presumably they're shelling out uh, over €1,800 Euro Uh, for the pleasure of spending up to 14 days in quarantine, why would they leave? I suppose uh, it's it's, from talking to Gardaí and from talking to people involved in the process uh, and the thinking process of these people, it's uh, it's probably something easy enough to sign up for and even pay over your money. But then the prospect of having uh, two weeks in a, a small hotel room um, in Dublin Airport, uh, can, like once it's in front of you, can be a bit daunting. And, uh, and and if people feel well and are well, they they feel what's the point of this? And that's led to some kind of heated arguments within the quarantine system as well. So it's kind of once you, once they get in there, it can be hard to justify it to to, uh, to themselves to stay, particularly because there's not much to stop them from leaving. The defence forces are there, but they've no enforcement role. They're more of an admin role. And the security guards are there, but security guards have no legal right to detain someone physically. Mm. Um let, let's move on because it, it is, as well as being teacher conference week, it's traditionally Garda conference week as well. And we've heard from some uh, Garda representative groups concern around the vaccine rollout now, the change in the rollout from categories uh, to the age profiling. Uh, 
Gardy making the point and Antoinette Cunningham making the point that they are very often, uh, a bit like healthcare workers, the first line of defence. That's right. Um, and, and, and even that incident yesterday with the three Brazilian women uh, showed, I mean, these are, are, are women who could potentially have been exposed to a virus or a variant of the virus before coming into the country. And it's the Gardaí who had to liaise with them and deal with them and persuade them to go back. So for, for Gardaí, um, this is just the latest example of what they say is an impossible role that they are expected to fill um, while being unvaccinated. That is regularly being exposed to people who are supposed to be in quarantine or even in some cases who have confirmed, uh, who have been confirmed as having COVID. Um, the, as I said, their representative associations have been very vocal on this and they're reflecting a huge anger among their members, which doesn't appear to be dying down even a week on from the decision to restructure the, the vaccine rollout. Uh, the Garda Representative Association and the um, uh, AGSI, the Association Representing Sergeants and Expectors, which between them represent the vast bulk of the force have pointed to several recent incidents which they say shows the need for the prioritisation of vaccinations for, for their members, uh, such as last week, for example, a man who was living in a hostel uh, in Dublin tested positive for COVID and he was told to self-isolate in his room. The next day he was caught shoplifting um, large amounts of cosmetics from two stores. Um, he appeared for the Tala District Court at the weekend, pleaded guilty, um, got a four-month sentence. Tala is, has become kind of the designated court for dealing with suspected COVID positive defendants or COVID positive defendants. Um, but the, so he got four months in prison, but the guardy who dealt with them, three of the guardy who dealt with them now have to self-isolate for 14 days. And that includes one Garda who we understand has since uh, tested positive for the disease. So that combined with um, uh, another incident involving uh, a, a person in mandatory hotel quarantine who uh, tested positive over the weekend, resulting in seven guardy, three in Ballymun Station, four in the airport, been told they had to enter quarantine. Now that 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 person later got a, a second negative test, so maybe those guardy won't actually have to fill their, their full their full quarantine. But, but, it, but it can take them out for for a period of time, take them out of the, exactly. the, the work environment. Connor, thank you very much for joining us. That's Connor Gallagher there, the Irish Times crime correspondent.
wonderfully talented Veronica Dunn, soprano, educator, mentor, friend, just some of the many words used to describe the world-renowned opera singer who has died at the age of 93. Known to her friends as Ronnie, she made her debut in 1948 in the role of Michaela in Carmen. She toured the world's finest opera houses in the 60-plus years since. We are joined now by soprano and friend Celine Byrne. Celine, thank you so much for joining us and our sympathies to, to you, all her friends and family this morning. And she was your friend and you were her student, but you became friends. Yeah, I think anybody that knows Ronnie, you can't just um, meet her and walk away. When you meet her, she's becomes part and parcel of your life. You kind of get engrossed in her and she in you. And that's just the way she is. And she was a very generous person. I, I've seen that written a lot about her in the hours since her death was announced. So generous with her time, with her expertise. She really invested in people that she met. Yeah, she was, she was, yeah, generous with it to a fault, you know. She would give anybody the last, you know, last year out of her pocket. And she was very generous um, to people with, with her teaching and you know, even when I went to her, you know, she, uh, she'd always say to me, now, you know, I'd go to pay her and she goes, now, no, don't be paying me. You need that money now to buy your groceries this week. And I'm like, Ronnie, it's fine. You know, I have to pay you. You know, it's your job. And she was like, no, 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 no. And, and then she had loads of people, you know, um, coming through that um, lived with her for a while. Even she invited them. She said, like, don't be coming up and down the country. Now you stay with me, lovey, and I'll look after you. And I know a lot of... A lot of people lived with her, like Anthony Kearns and everything like that. And she was just very, very generous with her time and with her spirit and mm. with her knowledge. It wasn't just a case where you'd walk in and meet Ronnie, have your lesson and go home. It was never like that. She'd always ring you, she'd always ring you and she'd ring me and she'd say, well, lovey, how are you getting on today? And let's do five hours tomorrow. I'd be like, Ronnie, you joke? And she goes, no, we need to do five hours tomorrow. <laughs> And she'd cancel all her lessons to work with you solidly for five hours. And she's just a fantastic woman and she'd be greatly missed by a lot of people. What impact did she have on your career then, Celine? I went to Ronnie after doing my undergraduate in the DIT, the College, the Conservatory of Music and Drama. And then I went to the Academy to do my Masters. And it was, Ronnie was the reason I went to the Academy. I met her the summer before and I had no plans to go on and do a master's and I was pregnant with my third child and I met her during the summer in Wexford at this inaugural Young Artist Programme, which they only had one at the time. And I met her and we were doing a bit of singing and she goes, you have to come to me, lovey. And I said, OK, Ronnie, but, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant. She goes, yeah, I can see that. Now you better tell your husband to put away to start wearing his wellies. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, but we're going to work together and, you know, we're going, you're going to work hard and we're going to do it. And I said, oh, Ronnie, I, I love music. And she goes, yeah, you come to me. And I did two years master's with her and uh, continued my studies with her up to like, I mean, I went to her. I saw her there last year. I popped um, over to see her on my way home and I left her a little something on her doorstep. And she was like, come on in, lovey, come on in and I give you a few lily lallies, a few lessons. And I said, we can't because of the coronavirus, you know, and I'm kind of sad now that I didn't go in and spend more time with her. I but know. I spoke a lot on the phone, but she did so much for my career. She gave me the confidence that I needed because I didn't really have much confidence. 
when I was uh, doing my undergraduate. So when going to her to do my master's, she just pushed me out there and she goes, put your two feet on the ground and sing and you can do it. And she gave me so much confidence and, and uh, refined my training. She was just amazing. She really was. You were privileged to have known her. And thank you so much, Celine, yes, uh, for joining us to pay tribute to your friend, Veronica Ronnie Dunn. listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.